0: I know how to do hypnosis, uh, and I know it because I was taught it briefly in medical school and I had used it a couple times uh, in practice, and I said, let's just see if that does any good for this guy.
1: Welcome to this episode of the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. My name is Dr. Will Duffin. And this installment is all about improvised medicine, the ad hoc equipment, methods, and techniques that enable care in the most resource-poor environments. My very special guest today is arguably the godfather of this topic. He's the author of the Seminal Field Manual of Improvised Medicine and Professor of Emergency Medicine at the University of Arizona, Kenneth V. Iserson. Now, I'm not gonna lie, I've got his book here in my hands, and. It's a meaty tome. It's over 500 pages of the tiniest font the human eye can see with brilliant hand drawn diagrams. But it is stuffed to the gills with some quite remarkable and ingenious techniques that he's compiled and refined over many years as the medical director of wilderness search and rescue in Southern Arizona, alongside working in the full range of austere and humanitarian environments on every single continent on earth. Of note, Ken has written a few other interesting books that are worth flicking through, including What Happens uh, to Dead Bodies in Different Cultures, that's Death to Dust, and Demon Doctors, a Profile of Physician Serial Killers. I really enjoyed listening to Ken talk passionately and candidly about his craft. And we also explored some of the moral and ethical dilemmas that are raised when you are completely winging it and flying by the seat of your pants out in the field. So here is my conversation with Professor Kenneth Iserson. Hello, Ken. I'm so glad you could join us on the podcast all the way from Arizona. Yes, uh, my pleasure. It's a fabulous compendium in my hand here, and I, as you can see, I've attacked it with highlighter and lots of post-it notes because it's just this incredible resource of different tricks and hacks and and wizardry. And um, what I'd like to do, if that's okay, is just go through some of the ideas in this that have really piqued my interest and just invite you to elaborate on them. Does that sound okay? That's fine. So what I'd I'd like to begin with the, this whole kind of concept of of improvised medicine what is it and how did you get into it in the first place
0: i got into it uh, by accident uh i'd say uh i've been i worked with our wilderness search and rescue team for 25 years and that includes mountains caves uh the few running rivers we have, and we'd often come across patients who needed something done, and we just didn't have the equipment, uh, the medical equipment to do it. And so, we, if we were gonna do something, we had to figure out a way, or in some cases, the best way. Um, one of the things that I did on the spot uh, was the uh, middle of the night, and I had to work the next day, and we were up in the mountains. We'd been called out, we went up in the mountains, Uh, for a guy with a dislocated shoulder who had been hiking by himself. And one of our advanced nurses got there first and tried to relocate it, said he couldn't do it. Uh, And I'm thinking, okay, well, I do have sedatives in my uh, medical pack, but if we do that, then we're going to be carrying this guy out for the next several hours. And I'd have to rush to work and I'd be exhausted. Said, let's see if there's a better way. So I said, I know how to do hypnosis uh, and I know it because I was taught it briefly in medical school and I had used it a couple times uh, in practice. And I said, let's just see if that does any good for this guy. So I quickly tried to just hypnotize him. And one of the things was I had to get my crew back be quiet just be quiet you know uh and i induced him and one of the things about hypnosis is you may not know whether they're really induced until you try it out and so i did hypnotize him and it was very quick i mean it's uh less than three minutes and then using a couple fingers i just gently pulled on his arm it just went right in and you know we strapped it and we said we'd carry his pack down and he ran down the mountain and we had to follow uh and that was just one example where thinking about the situation uh allowed me to figure out a better way of doing it
1: and your book is just full of examples like that these elegant solutions to problems that we face in wilderness and austere environments where we don't have the resource to do the job that we would normally be doing in, in our usual place of work in a normal clinic or ward wherever that might be and it's all about making the most of the kit you have repurposing other kit or sometimes using no kit i mean that that example of using hypnosis you didn't need any kit whatsoever you didn't need any drugs syringes access you just used the power of, of of speech to achieve an effective anesthetic to do that procedure. That's just remarkable, isn't it?
0: Oh, one of the things I was taught as a medical student, uh, you know, what what stethoscope are we supposed to use? They said, it doesn't matter what goes in your ear, it's what's between your ears that counts. Yes. And that that's it. Uh, you yeah. have to do your thinking and have that mindset
1: yeah and talking of the stethoscope there's a great example in your book of where that can be used in a patient who's hard of hearing you reverse the stethoscope i love that you you um you put the stethoscope in the patient's ears and they and they use that as a, a modified hearing aid you speak into the diaphragm of the stethoscope i just love that just it's a very creative way of, of taking a, a, a piece of medical equipment that just seems so ubiquitous and so boring and repurposing it in in a whole new way that, that's brilliant
0: yeah and it it generally does work. Make sure you speak the person's language though. I've had oh, yeah. a couple of cases where <laughs> it didn't work because we were talking uh, completely different languages. But
1: yeah, that's that's a wonderful technique. And talking of um, diagnostics, tell me what, what is direct auscultation? What happens when you don't use a stethoscope at all? Have you tried that? Does it work? I have and it it can work,
0: it, it just depends how loud the sounds are. You're not going to be hearing uh, an S4 murmur, uh, but uh, you can hear uh, intestinal sounds, uh, you can hear lung sounds, but you have to be willing to put your ear right against the chest and the, explaining it to the person while you're doing it. And in fact, that's some of the sources I used uh, for the book going way back uh, centuries uh, that's how they first did auscultation was direct auscultation and then they used little tubes uh, and eventually they got to the modern stethoscope and now of course there are a lot of people are abandoning this abandoning the stethoscope but uh, it's just going back and look le- learning from our forebears
1: yeah, that's one thing i really love about the book is it, it is an exploration of the history of medicine and you do reference that throughout um and it's interesting to see these techniques that were once used in you know kind of middle ages being re- revitalized and repurposed um you know that that kind of ancient wisdom still has its place in 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 the kind of modern medical age of, of technical very high-tech medicine um tell me about this um kenneth uh, us are us army's U.S. Air Force slogan features prominently in your introduction, which is the difficult we do immediately. The impossible takes a little longer. What does that mean to you?
0: Uh, Don't give up. If you need to do something uh, to help the patient save a life, uh, alleviate pain, uh, figure out a way to do it and uh, incorporate the rest of your team in the thought effort. Uh, There've been quite a few times when, both in wilderness uh, medicine and in uh, situations where we just didn't have what we needed, where I asked my entire team, how do you think we can do this? And between the group, among the group, uh, we came up with uh, an answer. And sometimes it was the pharmacist thinking about an alternative drug. Uh, In some cases, it was one of our engineers uh, who worked with us on uh, search and rescue. Uh, Well, we can put together this kind of apparatus right here, and it'll do the job. Uh, So you have to be innovative. But one of the things is, is it necessary for the patient? You don't do it just to be dramatic you have to the patient actually has to need what you're doing
1: yes indeed I, I think we'll come on the second part of this conversation i'd like to come on to some of the ethics behind this as well um but what for me one thing that really stands out is is it's as much about it, it, it it's as much about the techniques as it is about a mindset and uh, for me what you're promoting here is this this uh, approach of just being able to work the problem—that's to use a, a phrase from NASA—not being not being thrown by anything and just finding uh, finding a way through any, any, any problem using your imagination, your you know your ingenuity—and it's um, uh, it, it's just a really great way, I think, to approach the world uh, uh, as much as as anything else. I, I really like the the spirit of this book.
0: Well, that's what I was really trying to get through in all the cases. It's not just a list of techniques. Uh, And I should say that, oh, back in 1938, uh, a writer for uh, one of the major nursing journals said, there is nothing left to improvise uh, in medicine. Well, there there is still a lot of things to improvise in all parts of medicine. And uh, one of the important things, again, in the introduction was when we work in a modern facility, physicians, especially in in, uh, uh, the more modern countries, modern healthcare facilities, we're always going to have the equipment. We're always going to have the uh, systems in place to do what we want to do. That's the mindset. And that has been recently proved so wrong Uh, uh, you know, we're not going to have an epidemic again or pandemic again. Of course, there was a worldwide pandemic with shortages of beds and shortages of medications. Uh, I've worked with our national disaster team uh, and responded to areas after hurricanes uh, and uh, also after tidal waves uh, where the hospitals were virtually destroyed and we were just using the skeleton of the hospital uh, to take care of patients. And these were modern, modern, you know, computerized facilities, there are no computers. One of the things that uh, I kind of harp on and my colleagues uh, here in emergency medicine, they're aghast when I say it, they're all using uh, these new fiber optic laryngoscopes, uh, which I have to say are you know, have a few percentage points, better first pass success. I said, but what happens when you're not going to have that equipment or it fails, or you, you don't have the electricity, or they want to work in wilderness medicine or in uh, less developed countries where you have to use the old laryngoscope? Are they going to be completely at sea? Oh, that'll never happen. I... I can't believe that response but I hear it over and over and over again so you have to be prepared for all these different things uh your discharge summaries your triage your I mean everything that's done by the computers
1: yeah we have to have systems so I know I really thought something as technical and, and high stakes as intubation that there really wasn't another way other than using the correct equipment but in your book Um, This is on page 92 of the original edition. There's incredible images one here where you're uh, illuminating the um, the larynx through the cricothyroid membrane externally using a a handheld torch. And you're you're accessing that that space using a a spoon that's bent in in half. Um, I mean, have you tried this and does it work? I have. It does work.
0: Uh, as one of my really experienced colleagues said, it's really dark in there. Yeah. Uh, so I, you, you, I mean, if if you're <laughs> going to use, if you're going to want if you're going to use uh, that technique, you have to get as bright a, I think you call it, torch, a flashlight, as you possibly can, and preferably in a darkened room. Uh, uh, you bend the spoon to lift up the tongue, and It should work. Uh, What I found actually even more successful over the years, and I've done this multiple times, is uh, blind blind nasal tracheal intubation. And the older anesthesiologists can still, and I I can do it too, but I uh, teach that technique. And it's phenomenally successful. uh, And but with the fiber optics, it's it's gone the way of the dodo bird, uh, it seems. And also digital intubation, which is actually uh, not that hard if you do it right. If you don't do it right, it's, your hands are going to get uh, yeah. mixed up. And it,
1: I, I can much, imagine smaller, smaller airways. So in, in pediatric patients, presumably that's a lot easier than in, a, in an adult. No
0: actually in the adults it's fine and the reason why is you pull the corner of the mouth back and so you have f- fine access people say but well, my fingers are too small
1: no 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 uh it works just fine okay so that's uh, intubation so tell me so there's lots of other um macgyvered procedures in in your book another example is repurposing an et tube an endotracheal tube into a chest tube how would you go about doing that
0: uh i did it most frequently or uh i did it in three patients within uh 10 minutes once at the bottom of a waterfall uh in a wilderness setting with our search and rescue team. Three stupid teenagers, uh, presumably drunk, went over the falls and uh, were in very, very bad condition. And so I had endotracheal tubes with me and one of my uh, paramedic partners uh, also had some. And we had to assume that they had pneumothoraces we were doing what we could do to save their life and so we use those uh as well as intubation uh to uh relieve whatever i i know in uh two of the cases where i put it in uh we did have a rush of air and that kept the chest open
1: was that something you did in the heat of the moment was that an on the fly Feats of improvisation, was that something you planned and prepared for?
0: I had thought about it in advance. It's always helpful to think about these kinds of things in advance. Uh, But it's just like uh, in an emergency room or in the operating room or somewhere else where you want to say, if this happens, how can I deal with it? Because then when it happens, you're all set.
1: So visualize success.
0: Visualize and that, success and your and your yeah. path to success.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. Let's have a look at uh, IV access alternatives to IV access, IV hydration, uh, and again, there's numerous uh, techniques here. Uh, there's ways of making bamboo needles, um, and also different ways of getting intra-oscious access without using a traditional drill. Tell me, what's your your uh, your preferred method then of getting access when you don't have the usual equipment available?
0: Well, I haven't actually used the bamboo. That was something that uh, prisoners of war used uh, in World War II. Uh, but I have used uh, regular IV needles to gain interest uh, osseous access in children and neonates, Uh, and where I work in third world countries, we didn't have any of the uh, high powered uh, guns to put in uh, needles. We didn't have the intraosseous needles. So we had to just use large bore IV needles. Uh, And my preferred site, which I developed, was just above the medial Mm, malleolus, just at the curve of the medial malleolus. And the reason why is that's one of the thinnest bones in the body. Uh, And I have used it multiple, multiple times, taught lots of uh, docs how to do it and literally saved lives. We could see it because as we were pushing the fluids through these, uh, the kid would wake up when we stopped, they went down and uh, eventually, Veins actually showed up, and we could start uh, some IVs. But that's happened multiple times where where uh, I was able
1: to save lives. Yeah, I can I'm imagine. Literally
0: that, dehydrated.
1: Yeah, the tibia is probably quite thick, isn't it? To to get a say, green needle in through there to get through the periosteum must be quite a a, a fight. That that's
0: that's why uh, I developed that technique. Is because yeah. we had a kid. And there were three of us trying to get uh, a needle into the middle of the tibia, uh, mm. and, which was at that time the recommended site. And no matter what we did, it wouldn't go. And with the, uh, the site just above the medial malleolus, uh, we can put it in with our hands, just a screwing technique with our hands. And it goes in fine
1: what if let me throw this one at you ken um you don't have any actual fluid you've got no hartman's no saline is there any way you can make up uh, a safe uh, reasonably sterile solution that you can use from scratch i have well, heard I like cases of people using yeah. coconut yeah. water for example i'm not sure that's very sensible but uh what, what would you use as a as a as a as a fluid I don't think
0: you're going to find much coconut water in uh, Britain. Uh, <laughs> Can but, in the supermarket, but, but but in fact, well, and I'm not sure if the stuff from the supermarket is useful. But if you get it right from coconuts, it's mm. been shown to be safe and effective. And I yeah. do have that in my second edition where I where I talk about that. Uh, but making your own uh, IV solution has been shown to be uh, dangerous and usually deadly. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a very, you know, it, it sounds very easy, but it's actually a very difficult technical uh, process. And that's one of the things I did was I looked at things that I thought would be uh, easy to do and useful mm. and either tested them or investigated them. Uh, some of those uh, some of those included using plaster of Paris uh, as splints, terrible idea, it doesn't work. No, uh, cauterizing wounds, you know, I mean, you see that in all the TVs and movies, somebody's heating up a knife or, or some, and they're cauterizing. No, it completely destroys the tissue uh, and no, it doesn't work. Uh, using soda bottles, plastic soda bottles as yeah. uh, ambu bags, absolutely not. Does not work. Yeah. I, and in fact, I've I've looked for good ways to do, uh, improvise ambu bags because that's really important. And there's no really good method. Uh, some people have had limited success in models using. Uh, air mattresses and and things like that
1: but uh, I I think I think that's really useful to know what doesn't work Uh, perhaps the most famous example that always comes up in kind of popular media is the the use of a biro as a uh, to get front of neck access in in (laughs) airway now I've got to ask you Ken does does that work have you ever tried it and is it something you might advise in obviously in in, if the the ship really did hit the fan but what do you think about that
0: uh no it's been tested <laughs> repeatedly yeah repeatedly and and uh, so you're talking about a pen <coughs> when you say a yeah. biro
1: i uh, think i think uh, yeah you, you, you yeah, use yeah t- you take out obviously yeah, you remove the right ink again yeah it does not work and
0: yeah if you can test it yourself it's really really easy to test all you have to do is pinch your nose closed put it in your mouth and see if you can breathe through it. Yeah. And you can't, uh, you know, you'll be choking in just a second.
1: Oh, yeah, I mean, uh, the internal diameter but, is tiny, isn't it? It's, yeah. That's right. I mean, what if you had, uh, I suppose you need quite high flow uh, jet oxygen for, for that to be effective. That's right.
0: And, uh, and if you've got that, then you're probably we, gonna
1: have the, the rest of the kit that goes with it, presumably.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, Uh, That's pretty sophisticated stuff, Mm. Uh, the uh, high-pressure jet insufflator. Uh, And not even – many emergency departments don't even have that. Even pediatric emergency departments Mm. don't have that. So uh, that's not what you're going to be looking for. Uh, There's two other things we tested uh, to see if they worked, and people think they would. And that's using uh, portable radios inside a hospital if your communication system goes down and seeing if they work. And and we tested them out. Uh, We had very sophisticated uh, ham radio operators uh, doing this all over a modern hospital, absolutely did not work. Uh, And that's because of the interference from the metal grid uh, in the hospital. So that's one thing that's in a lot of disaster plans but that doesn't work. Uh, The other thing is, uh, and some well-known people wrote about it, and that's auscultating for fractures, you know, with a stethoscope. And we found that it was uh, no better than flipping a coin uh, to find out uh, whether they really had a fracture or didn't have a fracture. Uh, And subsequently, people have uh, finally started reporting that. But, uh, just as with Galen, when yeah. uh, he had things and people believed it for centuries or millennia, uh, people believed this because of the people who had uh, written about it. but no, mm. uh, it doesn't work. one I'd other see- thing that one I'm sorry, one other thing that's in disaster plans. Uh, if you look in almost every disaster plan in the for a hospital in the world, is they say, if we need to evacuate the hospital, call the fire department. Right. And I mean, that sounds very reasonable. You talk to the fire department, they're going to anywhere, they're going to say, no, we can't do that. You know, because it's going to take four people per patient wearing our equipment. It'll, you know, from the eighth floor, it's going to take uh, half an hour. And you have 30, 40 patients. You no. Know, so we developed a, a, an alternative solution uh, that we've, we tested in real hospitals, uh, using mattresses, uh, and sheets and,
1: uh, talk, talk me through it. So this, so this is a, a vertical hospital. Is that right? Tall hospital, a vertical, a vertical,
0: stair- vertical stairwell, right.
1: no, no elevator right. or out of action. How do you right. achieve that with mattresses and sheets? Talk me through it.
0: Okay. You pull, uh, mattresses
1: off the beds and you line the
0: stairs of the hospital between landings. Uh, Then you can get the patient off the bed by again, sliding their mattress around and just sliding them down the bed. They're on a sheet. Uh, You put another sheet around them. Uh, One person at the head, one person at the feet, and uh, a third person holding onto the belt of the top person. And you slide them down the hall. And we use little people to take big patients, and it was easy. Uh, slide them down the hall, onto the first mattress, whoop, right on down, and the people walk alongside the mattress, hmm. uh, and down to the landing, and down, down, down. Uh, and from an eighth floor, it would take, oh, maybe four or five minutes. to That's get remarkable. them all the way downstairs, yeah, and yeah, then they just... Yeah, and it's, uh, I published a paper on it, and it was in uh, the Southern Medical Journal, as well as describing it in uh, Improvised Medicine.
1: There's always a way, always a way. I, I, I theory is one thing and I think the most compelling examples for me are the ones where you do have real world experience of these techniques or you've known someone you quote lots of other colleagues in the book that have tried this and and shared their experiences but I, I can imagine that the opportunities to practice and battle test these techniques in real world settings must be quite limited is that is that the case Is a lot of this quite theoretical or is how much of it have you really been able to, to test?
0: Uh, I've, again, I've worked on all seven continents and most of it has been in uh, third world countries. So I've gotten to plus 25 years in the field with search and rescue uh, and also with the disaster uh, medical assistance team here in the US. So I've had a lot of opportunity myself And then colleague, I've been in association with a lot of colleagues uh, who've done similar types of things. Uh, One of the things that I talk about, and I didn't develop all of these. In fact, I didn't develop most of these things. Most of them have been developed by others, and I adapted them. Or they were developed many years ago, and I've reutilized them one of them uh which has proved to be extremely useful something called a ruggedized iv mm, and when i taught, when i was well, what it is is it's a normal iv uh except uh except that you really uh adhere uh secure the iv really tightly uh the only part that's out is just a little plastic hub, so you can put something in, and then you're, and that's the IV in the vein. Then what you take is you take another IV, and you stick it in there, and that's what you attach your fluid to, and you bandage it all up. And what it is, is for uh, difficult evacuations from the field, or for patients who are thrashing around, including kids and other things, Mm -hmm. especially if you either had a hard time putting it in or you figured you're going to have a hard time in the situation you're in. Mm -hmm. And I was actually doing it for the first time in Guyana, uh, which is a uh, less developed country. And I was, I work at the general hospital there Mm -hmm. and they don't have all the resources uh, they want. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the, my colleagues there were just shaking their heads saying, we don't need this. We don't need this. And I convinced a few to try putting this in. And then very quickly, they found that, hey, it works perfectly. Uh, The person started thrashing. The superficial IV came out. All they had to do was replace that needle and put it back in. And they were golden. And, And that's especially true if it's the giving uh, important fluid for a very important reason, or medication through that IV. And that was developed, by the way, that was developed by the uh, special forces uh, in the sandboxes when they were there.
1: Okay, yeah. So all this innovation is happening out there, and you've just kind of concentrated it into into this book. Uh, you've 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 kind of the champion of all these different individual innovators that have. Uh, created all of this. I mean, I've, I've done a bit of experimentation uh, myself, Ken. So my wife and I were, were out in Myanmar for six months working in a low resource setting in a, in a neonatal unit. She's a pediatrician. I was essentially her, I'm a family physician, but I was her SHO. And we played around with making um, bubble CPAP, um, which was quite technical. And also I think more successfully um, making spacers out of bottles um, to, for salbutamol, but for um, um beach delivery in, in asthma and, and that that worked quite well actually uh, and there's there's, uh, there's actually a section in your book on that and also not just using bottles but also um polystyrene cups work quite well is, is that right
0: that's right but yeah you know <clears throat> excuse me uh there are, what i'm finding is that some of the techniques in the book are starting to become so routine Uh, that they may not belong in this book uh, if we get a next edition. Uh, One example uh, is uh, literary tractors, improvised literary tractors, if you have to look at the Mm -hmm. eye, and you make them by bending uh, the paperclip. Yes. But in fact, now I've seen the ophthalmologists coming down and using those instead of the very expensive formal literary tractors. They, They reserve their formal ones for the operating room uh so yeah. you no know, things develop uh eventually some of these improv improvisations become the standard
1: how interesting i've seen um in the book also paper clips being used as thudicums or uh kind of uh, nasal speculae which I, I i think is quite nice so you know, one simple piece right. of paper dip can have multiple different applications
0: right i also show how you can use a, a bent hanger uh is that what you call it a hanger yeah co-
1: a clothes hanger yeah yeah uh, and you can bend it and you can use that as a nasal speculum brilliant brilliant ken tell me about 3d chest x-rays how do you get a three-dimensional uh, it kind of image in your brain from uh, an ap and a lateral view uh two chest x-rays side by side how do you achieve that
0: no actually you do it from two ap uh okay. films. And uh, what you do is you convince the radiology tech to take two films about 15 degrees apart uh, without the person moving. Then you put them up side by side and you stare at them and you cross your eyes a little bit. (laughs) Uh, I can, I mean, I can do it in seconds. Uh, The first time you do it, it'll take a little longer and you get a 3D image in the middle. The benefit of that is if there is a foreign body or a localized pneumonia, you can tell exactly where it is uh, in the chest in three, three dimensions. Um, I actually learned that at a very non third world place, Uh, Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota uh, used to do that routinely. I don't know if they still do for their routine chest X-rays mm-hmm. and you had to be able to learn to do it again in seconds uh, as they flip uh, the films. A way to practice this without uh, X-rays is to take some of those old 3D cards, uh, which you can still find in, in the antique shops and, uh, and just look at them and form your own image
1: so it takes a bit of practice that one it's uh
0: it takes a, l- a little practice yeah. but i i have a, a way of practicing in the book where you can yeah. test it out on a non-x-ray image
1: i'd like to ask you ken about drugs now and um some some hacks or tricks that you might have on if you have a wilderness medical kit and it's limited how you can use one class of drug for m- many different applications, or particular drugs that you think are very versatile in austere environments. What are your uh, a- a kind of top top drugs that that can be repurposed in many ways?
0: Uh, it's going to depend on what country you're in. Uh, we talked earlier about Benadryl, which is my go-to multi-purpose drug. Uh, you have to know what drugs are available and. W- how many different uses the drug can be uh, repurposed for are <clears throat> one of our problems that I see right now, uh, or in, for many years in medicine, is the drug reps downgrade uh, any drug that's uh, generic, and they try to emphasize the use for every drug. Uh, uh, diazepam is uh, a good example. We're not supposed to be using it for most of the things we used to use it for, but in fact if you start investigating it, it has lots and lots of various uses that you could reliably use in a wilderness or third world setting. Uh, Benadryl is another one which is a uh, first generation antihistamine. Uh, and you might have something similar wherever you are. Um, uh, some of the antipsychotics, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, prochlorperazine mm. uh, can be used as an anesthetic, local anesthetic, as well as an antipsychotic, uh, as an antiemetic. So you have do something. About... Do you crush that and and no, make well, that well, I'm talking about that that all I mean? of these. All these are injectable. We're right. talking about injectable, yeah. Right. Um, uh, the Valium can be used uh, orally because it's just as effective in many cases orally. But uh, you just have have to know your own what's available where where you are, and read just a little bit about the multiple uses yeah. for the particular drugs. But there's something else even more important about uh, drugs. Well, one, uh, you can use a lot of veterinary drugs if that's all you have available. Mm. And I've been in situations uh, where there were almost no drugs after a disaster, but there were some veterinary drugs. And with care, you can use the bioequivalent veterinary drug. Mm. Uh, Even more important is there's an expiration date on every drug and if you look and see how they developed the expiration dates the pharmaceutical companies it's flipping a coin or figuring out when uh they want it off the shelf so you can order more you can use expired drugs and i have on multiple occasions uh if the person is in a condition to uh, understand, you can explain to them what you're doing and get their assent. And I mean, I've used even thrombolytics mm. uh, that were past their uh, expiration. Yeah. And I've never had a patient say, I've never had a patient say no.
1: And that it's was really- the only option. It's great to hear your view on this. And uh, yeah, this the section, the discussion in, in your book is is really helpful. Um, I've always been skeptical of expiration dates and I, it's, I suspect there's always more commercial reasons for that and kind of prompting uh, pharmacies and, and and clinics to be restocking regularly so that you know, it keeps the sales figures healthy. Um, but the, you know, the flip side is we just don't always know how much potency is lost as we go further past the expiration date for given drugs, I think some drugs lose their potency much more quickly than others. So, I, I, my concern is what you know. If it is a kind of quite a critical drug, uh, you know, yeah, is is it really um, how how relaxed should we be? And I, I think there's it's a really unknown area, isn't it? But it seems to be what the bottom line is that generally speaking, the most potency is preserved for longer than we would think. Is that is that what you're saying?
0: A lot, a lot longer than we
1: think. Yeah,
0: yeah, the only the only exception is in ophthalmic uh, uh, medications that are you know put directly into the eye. Uh, we have to be careful because uh, they can develop bacterial overgrowth without us realizing it, and that can be yeah. extremely dangerous. But other than that, all drugs are uh, can be used past their expiration date
1: yeah yeah i want the the final kind of bit i wanted to ask you in terms of the specific techniques is around snake bites and clotting times and i think you've got a technique for measuring that manually to tell me have you um used this in the field and and tell me how it works
0: yeah you uh draw a sample blood from the patient and this is to find out uh one if they need anti venin after supposedly uh, venomous snake bite. And the second is, is your anti venin working? Uh, and so we, it's very simple. You draw a tube of blood and we uh, tape it to the wall and you see if it clots. Uh, I mean, that's all there is. And we published a paper on that. Uh, and so it's available. Uh, we used it. Uh, during my time in a Sub-Saharan African country where there were a lot of snake bites. Uh, and what we found out is that uh, where the test was showed that they needed antivenin, they in fact needed antivenin. Uh, and we did not have the other sophisticated laboratory tests available. Okay.
1: Um One aspect of this, I want to move now on to the the kind of ethics of improvised medicine. I I think it's important to point out that the majority of these techniques are really just for use in quite extreme situations, really, where you genuinely don't have the the resource or correct equipment and there is no alternative. Is that right? This, This isn't something you'd necessarily be toying around with lightly. Um, But they they all require a degree of courage and a a kind of key facet of modern medicine is it's become very litigious, very guideline driven. And I think many practitioners hearing this podcast would be filled with a sense of unease. They'd be thinking, you know, is it really something I should be doing? Uh, and how could they overcome that sense of unease uh, if they were to find themselves in a situation of needing to use the the techniques you outline in the book? Uh,
0: will it help the patient? You know, and do you have an
1: alternative uh,
0: that could be as good at helping the patient? I mean, it's it's very straightforward. Uh, If you have all your normal equipment and systems and knowledge base, go ahead and use it. But if you don't and the patient is in need, then that's the reason you're there is to help the patient. So help them using whatever technique uh, is available as long as it won't do more harm than good. But in my experience, uh, physicians, uh, in general, are reluctant to use things that they haven't seen their colleagues use, uh, that they didn't learn in residency training, uh, you know, I mean, that aren't run of the mill. And I don't think it's the official guidelines or protocols that are the reason. I think it's just the mindset uh, of the physician uh, who generally is conservative, which isn't a bad thing, uh, but there's a ton. Excuse me, there's a time when you have to overcome that
1: to benefit the patient. You mentioned there one of the kind of key tenants of, of medical medical practice, which is first do no harm. Do you think there is a risk of you know certain individuals working in a low-resource setting where perhaps there is less accountability of there being uh, overzealous heroism? whereby perhaps people are, are, are kind of playing around with these techniques they're thinking, oh, this will make a good story, I'll, I'll give this a go. Uh, are there times where they, you know it's perhaps best not to I- I experiment with, with these techniques and just not intervene at all? How, how do we guard a- against that?
0: Well, if, if not intervening, <clears throat> what I tell people is not making a decision is the same as making a decision not to do something. Uh, My experience in uh, resource-poor countries is they are, if anything, more conservative than other physicians. They don't wanna jump into things that they are not familiar with. Uh, Again, if the patient is in need and you have no other option, then I would recommend that people try the technique uh first do no harm that's absolutely true but if they're already harmed and you need to make things better go for it
1: okay i think that that sounds like sound advice to me well ken it's been a real pleasure hearing your words of wisdom and and going through some of the key ideas in your book i recommend anyone uh, get put yourself up a copy it definitely earned its place on my wilderness medicine bookshelf uh, i'm sure i'll be referring back to it for many years to come so ken thank you so much for your time today it was a pleasure talking to you will thanks for listening to the episode Please feel free to rate, review and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to. Please also head over to the World Extreme Medicine website where you can find more engaging content on extreme medicine webinars and indeed the collection of courses from our global network, including humanitarian, disaster relief, expedition, space, military, tactical and performance medicine. Thanks again.